Thank you for tuning in to listen to this sermon from the Ville Church. To find out more about us and our weekly scheduled services, please visit theville.church. My topic is Solo Cristo. Last week when Jeremy was speaking, um, I was trying to think, how does this all fit together? We have, there are five sola, sola, if you've been following it. There's Sola Scriptura, Solo Gratia, Solo Cristo, Sola Fide, Sola Dei Gloria. And I put them together on the screen. You can see it made sense to me. Scripture alone is the basis for salvation. It's where we understand our need for salvation. Uh, grace alone is our means to salvation. It says, for by grace you're saved. Today, through Christ alone is the focus of salvation. He is our focus. And then faith alone, it's our response to salvation. We respond in faith. For by grace, through faith, you've been saved. And then the end, glory to, God be, glory to be to God alone, it's the reason for salvation. He brings salvation to us for his glory. So that'll help me to understand and fit them all together. Maybe it'll help you. Solo Christo means through Christ alone. The Roman Catholic tradition, when it started in the Reformation, uh, was based on faith plus a variety of works and the need for a priest as a mediator between us and God. In Solo Cristo, Jesus is presented as the one and only way for salvation and as our only and their one and only mediator. There is no other. But as I begin to prepare the message, I begin to think, you know, how do I tie Solo Cristo to Mother's Day? How does it fit together? Um, so one way, I thought, is when children are little, when they get lost in a large crowd or when they're uh, scared at night because they had bad dreams and they, they call out for someone, who do they call out for? Mommy. Mommy. Mom. Where's my mom? And that, that happens uh, many times. And I, and I thought about also, but this calling for mommy doesn't end with childhood. Many of you may know that Connie and I spent many years in Africa. And uh, many of the African countries are renowned for their wild animal parks. You can see some pictures of animals we saw the years. And these are huge tracts of land that are preserved for the wild animals of Africa. The animals roam freely okay, in these parks and the rangers keep the people from living in these parks so the wild animals will stay in them. We saw some amazing animals in our times in Africa, being up close with them. And you can camp near these parks. Uh, in and sometimes while you're camping, the animals will actually visit your campsite. A couple of men in their 20s told me a story. They were camping just outside the gate of one of these parks. And in the middle of the night, they woke up and heard something next to their tent. And they listened to see what kind of animal it was. And after a few minutes, the animal roared. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard a lion roar. But if you have, you can understand why it's the king of the jungle. When a lion roars, everything freezes. It's so deep and so powerful, it just it shakes the ground, literally. Well, these men told me that um, later, they, one of them said, when the lion roared, the first thing he did was wet his pants because he thought, it's over. Nothing between him and the lion but a little tent wall. And then he said the first thing that came out of his mouth was, Mommy! mommy because he said he was so afraid he didn't know what to do 
But as I thought about that story, obviously the lion left them and didn't bother them. But uh, as I thought about that, his mommy really couldn't save him from that lion. And our mommies can't save us from the penalty of sin in our lives, even though we love them and we call out to them. So Christ alone. During the Reformation, the main point was that our Christian efforts do not aid in saving us. That Christ alone saves us completely. And today, even in Christianity in America, we see people sometimes placing more, effort on, more emphasis on their efforts than on Christ and what he's done for us. It's true, we don't live in a Christian society, and the, the agnostic attitude seems to imply we don't need a Savior. We don't need saving. And so because of that, there doesn't seem to be a real urgent need or desire to reconcile to God. For Christians, for non-Christians, or Christians many times, sadly. I think, I think about that. There's a couple of things to share with us about that. Sometimes I think we don't, we don't think we need saving. Why is that? Why, don't, why do not we not think we need saving? Sometimes we compare ourselves to others. I don't know about you, but I can look at other people who are doing a lot worse than I am. I can consider myself as good at or even better than some people. But in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it tells us for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. None of us can say, I've not done that or done that. And the problem with the attitude of saying, you know, I'm better than somebody else is other people are not our standard. God is our standard. He said, this is what we are striving for. You will not meet up to me. You are sinful. So we can't compare ourselves to others. Then another reason I think we don't feel like we need to be saved is that we fail to see the depth of our depravity. We are depraved people. We are separated from God. We fail to see it. In Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 18, it says, What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. No one is righteous. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, I like to look at others and say, yeah, that's the way they are. I can see them. They're not pursuing God, but maybe I am. I'm doing better. But if I'm really honest myself, I can see that even in my good deeds, trying to love others or to imitate Christ, my, my, my actions are tainted by my own sinfulness. I think about when I do good and loving things for for Connie, I find myself keeping a record. And if she doesn't reciprocate with equal amounts of kindness or love, I begin to say, hey, I've done my part. I start withholding. You know, I don't, I, you know, and, and in the past, you know, you keep on three by five cards, then I got the journals, and now I keep it on the computer because it has more memory or something. You just, you feel like I, I, I got to be able to, 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 to see that there's reciprocation tainted by my sinfulness. So I begin to think, unconditional love? You know, that, 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 that doesn't seem possible. I know it's not possible for me. Connie shared a, a quote with me uh, by Henry Nouwen. It says, uh, it seems to be easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. You know, isn't that a problem from the very beginning when the serpent came in the Garden of Eden? He said, you can be like God. You don't have to love and trust God. You can be God. 
We want to be God. And the second part of that, easier to control people than to love people? I have a hard time with that. Loving people as they are? No, I want to control them. I want to make them like I think they should be. We see that even in our children. When we respond to our children, your children come to you, they'll grab you and hug you. Oh, Mom, Dad, I love you. You know, let me help you do this. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do that for you. I'm going to bring this to you. And our response is, what do you want? You're trying to control me to get something you want. I mean, we all do that. We've all done that. We know we do it to each other. Think of even about husbands and wives. If I were to show up at my home one day after work with a bouquet of flowers, chocolates, or a bottle of wine, and it wasn't, you know, a special holiday, birthday, Connie's birthday, or Valentine's Day, and I just said, you know, I love you so much. I've been thinking about you all day. I want to take you to dinner tonight. She may be enjoying the moment, but in a little bit she'll be thinking, what do you want? Why are you showing me so much love right now? You know, it must be an angle that you're, you're getting at. I think the same for me. If I came home from work and, and Connie was there, had a nice table set, was on my, my favorite meal, you know, and she was, you know, dressed really nicely and just grabbed and hugged me, and I'd be, I'd be enjoying the moment, but I'd be thinking, what do you want? You know, why, why, are you, why are you doing this? You want to control the situation. We all do that. We all do that. We want to control because that's how we're conditioned by our sinfulness so it's easier to control people than to love them so we don't think we need to be saved we don't think we need this in our lives but then uh, if we if we do see our, our we are sinful in some way we think we can save ourselves i don't know about you but we think we can and i thought what are some ways that we try to save ourselves one way is that we defend ourselves or our actions we can tell you why we do them. You know, and you ask something about so someone, they'll, they'll, they'll give a quick explanation. I did this because of this, or I can defend myself. That's how I save myself. We lived in North Africa for a few years, and we helped run a school. And when a student from the, the country there would, would be um, uh, caught in doing something wrong or would be suspected of doing something wrong, the first thing they would do to begin to prove their innocence was to swear on the grave of their grandmother. They'd say, I swear on the grave of my grandmother. I didn't do that. The only problem was, as soon as they said that, we knew they were guilty. We knew it. I mean, it just, it just flew and flowed together. But they were trying to defend themselves. I didn't do that. I swear on the grave of my grandmother. And uh, my sons became so adept, they could do it in, in Arabic because they heard it so much. Just, that's, that was what they did. They defend themselves. We, we do it ourselves. We defend ourselves against things that we know are wrong in our life. We don't want to be seen. Another way we try to save ourselves is by blaming others. Blaming others. It started with Adam and Eve. What did Adam say? The woman you gave me, God. What did Eve say? The serpent. It's deep within us to blame others. So if I can blame others, I don't have to take responsibility. I can blame others. We all struggle with it. It's all a part of us, trying to save ourselves. Another way I feel like we, we, we try to save ourselves is we cover our sins. An Arab, there's an Arabic proverb that says, a sin concealed is two-thirds forgiven. A sin concealed is two-thirds forgiven. Meaning that if, if, if nobody knows about it, then I don't have to deal with it. The only, prob only problem is God knows everything. God knows everything. So he knows our sinful hearts and how we try to cover up the things that we don't want to be known, thinking that that'll be okay. How deep is our, 
our depravity, how far we've gone from God. Another thing we do, I feel like, in trying to deal with our sins and trying to save ourselves is that we deny. We deny. It starts with children, again. Have you ever caught a child drawing on the wall with a crayon or cutting something with scissors they're not supposed to? And you say, what are you doing? What's the first thing they do? They hide it. Nothing. I'm not doing anything. What do you got in your hand? Nothing. I don't have anything in my hand. We do the same thing. You know, somebody, if we find out, somebody finds out what we've done or we, we're a pro so something we've done. No, no, it wasn't me. It, it, you know, we try to blame. We do nothing, but we, we want to deny. That's not me. Or we, many times we'll say, I did that, but that's not me. How deep is our depravity? When I was a boy and my grandmother would often find that we had done something, my cousins and I or my siblings and I had done something, that we had broken something or she'd find it, and she'd come out and she'd say, who did this? Of course, the first thing we'd say, I didn't, or not me. Um, and then she would always say to us, she would say, the hit dog hollers, meaning that the guilty one speaks first. So the first, uh, what, what I would say, I, not me, she'd say, I know you did it because you spoke first. You wanted to be the first to deny it, so you did it. We all are that way. We all want to be the first to say, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. In our neighborhood, we have a backyard that we have a swing in, and we have the children come and play from time to time. And one of my rules, they close the gate when they come in. And so many times I find the gate open. I'll say, okay, it's time to go. Didn't close the gate. I didn't do it. I, I said, I don't care who did it. You got to go. But they're always willing to say, I didn't do it. Denying any, any part of it. And then the last thing about trying to save ourselves, is, uh, which I think is the most uh, devastating, is we try to justify or even rationalize our sinfulness. We try to justify it in some way and rationalize it. And um, we all do it. We all want to say, this is why I did that, or, and, and make it seem better than what it really is. I'm reading uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. I've never read, heard a lot about it, but I've never read it. And um, saw something in there that really hit me. There's a scene where the main character, Uncle Tom, has been sold to a slave trader, and he's been taken down the Mississippi River to be resold. And on the trip, uh, the slave trader bought uh, a woman and her child as well, a small baby. And she was on the ship with them or as they were going. And um, the, uh, during the trip, another man made an offer for the woman's baby. So the slave trader saw a chance to make some money, so he sold the baby from the mother. So the mother left the child who was sleeping to do something while she was gone. They took the child quickly and uh, so the other man took it, small baby. The woman came back. She was so, uh, you know, un, she couldn't deal with the, her loss. So later in the evening on the trip, she cast herself overboard and committed suicide. As the main character, Uncle Tom, is watching this, he saw the, how, how bad this was, how evil and just how injustice was uh, and the sad thing was as we all know during that time even the churches were supportive of the system but uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe who wrote it had this quote I'd like to share with you that really hit me it says if he Uncle Tom had only been instructed by certain ministers of Christianity he might have thought better of it better of what was happening and seen it as an everyday incident of lawful trade a trade in which is the vital support of an institution which some American divines tell us has no evils, 
but such as are inseparable from other relations in social and domestic life. They had become so accustomed to justifying and rationalizing something as, as so um, evil as slavery, enslaving others, that they said it's okay. It's just like trading animals or trading whatever. It's, it, it, there's no difference. How hard, how difficult that was to think of rationalizing, justifying that. And in my own life, you know, when, when I'm confronted with sin in my life or I see the Bible says something, I start saying, well, I know the Bible says, but I want to do this. I know the Bible says, I know the Bible says, love your enemies. But if you knew this enemy, I don't think God could love them. Or I, I know the Bible says this, but that's how I realize I start justifying sin in my life. When I start saying, I know the Bible says, but... I don't know about you, but it's such a deeply ingrained in me. There's a man, Gunnar Myrdal, a Nobel Prize winning Swedish social economist. In the mid-1900s, he wrote about race relations in the U.S. and how to wipe out third world poverty. He was quoted in his life a couple of times. Early in his life, he said this, human beings are good. We can improve conditions through reform. But shortly before his death, he was quoted again saying, the world is going to hell in every possible way. When we look at our own lives, we think, we're getting better. And then as we know and uh, we see our sinfulness more, and we see how far we are from what God desires for us, it makes us call out to God in our need for salvation. So we need salvation. We need salvation. We need it, first and foremost, because we are all under God's wrath, as we have saw before. In Romans 5.12, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death came to all people because all have sinned. We're all sinful. And so we are under God's wrath, and we need salvation. God saves us from several things. One, He gives us salvation from His wrath because of our sins. In um, Romans 5, 8, 9, it says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Then it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We're all under God's wrath. None of us can say, I don't deserve God's wrath. We all deserve God's wrath because of our sinfulness. It's the reality. But he, he's, he offers us salvation through Christ from that. We don't have to experience his wrath. Also, we are saved from death because of our sins. In Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. We will either accept our wages or we'll accept God's payment for our wages. Um, in 1 Corinthians 5, 15, 22, For since death came through a man, and the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, for as in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive. We are saved from death. We don't need to fear death. He conquered death in his death and resurrection. And then from the kingdom of darkness, we are saved from the kingdom of darkness. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Jesus offers that. He says, you don't have to experience my wrath. You don't have to experience death as others. And you don't have to live in darkness. I give this to you. 
because I love you. And Jesus is the only one who can save us. As I said, we try to save ourselves in many ways, but we fail. We fall short. We can't do it. He's the only one. In the Old Testament, we know that to atone for sins, uh, the high priest would uh, ceremonially clean himself. He would take an animal, sacrifice it, an animal without any blemish, a perfect animal. And then he would take that blood of that animal and enter into the most holy place in the tabernacle where God's presence dwelt. He would enter with the blood as a lamb, as an offering for the sins of the people. He did this once every year. In Hebrews 9, 7, it says, But into the most holy place only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. He would go, but he had to go in this way. But then when Jesus came as the perfect lamb of all lambs and died on the cross and rose from the dead, he finished the work of the high priest because he presented himself as the spotless lamb for the sin of all mankind and conquered death by his resurrection. Several verses in Hebrew point this out. In Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And because he was without sin, he could die for us. I could never die for anyone because I am sinful myself, but because Jesus was without sin, he could die for us. Then in Hebrews 7.27, he has no need like these high priests to offer daily sacrifices for, first for his own sins and then for those of the other people since he did this once for all when he offered himself. He finished it. There was no other need for another offering. He said, I am the offering for all. And then in Hebrews 9, 11 to 14, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. And because of that, because he offered himself and because he came to pay the price that we could never pay, and to die for our sins, we read in Acts 4.12, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Only through Jesus. George Barna uh, does many surveys throughout the U.S., and he has this to say. He says, 62% of all Americans have said it doesn't matter what religious faith you follow because all faith teach similar views about life. For many non-Christians, Scripture teaches a universalism when it comes to our fallenness. You know, we, we look around us, we can say, yeah, we, we're in a mess, we're fallen, we're, we're like that uh, Swedish uh, social economist when he says, we're going to hell in every possible way, it seems. Everything is working against it. I had a friend visit uh, me in Africa when we lived there, and he said, this is a paradise before man came in and started destroying it. And we can look around us and say, it seems like everything we touch, we, we mess it up because of our sin. But even though they may say it's universalism in, in regard to human, humanity's fallenness, the Bible does not teach universalism in regard to salvation. Redemption is limited to those who are in Christ. And for us as Christians, it is about accepting Christ's work over our efforts to be right. We can never make ourselves right. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ alone is our 
wisdom and our righteousness, our sanctification and our redemption. Christ alone, nothing else, nothing added. Christ alone calls us back to Christ as the sole mediator between God and man. That Christ the works alone saves us. In 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, it says there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony bore at the proper time. There's only one mediator, only one way to God through Christ. Not seeing our need for Jesus as Savior results in Christians proclaiming and worshiping, according to uh, a man, H.R. Niebuhr, it results in worshiping a God without wrath, who brought men without sin, and to a kingdom without judgment, through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Without seeing our need for a Savior through Jesus, we diminish His work on our behalf. Finally, because we are more sinful and more deserving of God's wrath than we admit, we are missing out on just how amazing Christ's intervention intervention is on our behalf. Non-Christians don't get it. We Christians many times are missing it. Through Christ alone, we are saved.